This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Nehemiah from Rubble to Return," was recorded at Wellspring Church on January twentieth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter one, verses one through eleven. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter one, verses one through eleven. Hear now the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, "The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire." As soon as I, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. And wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of Heaven. And I said, "O Lord God of Heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let Your ear be attentive to Your and Your eyes open to hear the prayer of Your servant that I now pray before You day and night for the people of Israel, Your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against You." Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, "If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there." They're your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So we are beginning a new series on the book of Nehemiah, and uh, one caveat is that this series is not a political statement about building walls.、Um, just happens to be, we are in this place.、Um, there's a a few things to consider. Why Nehemiah? Nehemiah is. He is building something, and he is building a wall. But much more than a wall, he's building something that honors God above all things. And most of you know we are building something as well. We're building a church building, and more than anything else, we wanted to have a right perspective about why we are doing this. And so we want to spend some time in Nehemiah because it is so important to have this right perspective. Otherwise, it becomes about building a church building, and that's it. And there are a lot of subcategories and different reasons as to why building a building can be a really good thing. But if those means are an end, it can be incredibly devastating to the church as a whole. And ultimately to God's name. And so, why Nehemiah? Why are we focusing on Nehemiah? Because first of all, Nehemiah is about having a really large view of God. 
if, if we don't really have this picture of who God is, whom we worship and why we gather, we do get so easily consumed with the daily routines of life and the, the microcosms of our day that that swamps us over. It overwhelms us so easily. And from that, rather than having the security and strength and peace that comes with having a big view of God, we get um, overwhelmed by uncertainty, anxiety, insecurity. Certainly, Nehemiah faced a lot of danger and turmoil and complaint and grumbling. How does one deal with that? How does one have a right perspective with that? The answer is to have Nehemiah's view of God. And so that's why we need Nehemiah more than even building something. It's about having this picture of who we are in light of who God is. Secondly, is that you'll see this especially today and, and the following weeks is that Nehemiah is about prayer. And prayer, as we see for Nehemiah, is not an add-on. It's not a spiritual discipline. And don't get me wrong, I do think Nehemiah and prayer in particular is a discipline to some extent, but it is a disservice to us if we think of prayer simply as a discipline or reading the Bible as a discipline. Because if you're like me, you hear that word and it's not so positive. It sounds burdensome to have a discipline. I don't think you look at Nehemiah and you see his prayer life as a spiritual discipline or ritual. It wasn't only for when life was messy that prayer became essential. Prayer is not you, you have to pray because God wants you to pray or when all else fails, that's when you should pray. Sadly, tragically, I think we so often think of prayer that way. It's, it's that last resort thing to do as a Christian. We need a miracle. So let's pray. You'll see in Nehemiah that prayer is not about this last resortness, but rather it's a response of a relationship. It's a regular part of his life. And Nehemiah doesn't talk to God as though God is this high maintenance God that really needs us to pray to him or else he feels lonely and empty. But rather prayer is the response of a heart because one who knows who he is, knows what he has done, and knows that without him, we, we just can't really make it. We can't survive. We can't go on because we need him. He is the source and sustenance for our very being, as uh, Paul says in the book of Acts. And so when we look today, we will first focus on Nehemiah's prayer. And then interestingly enough, uh, Chad didn't read this last part of verse 11, but this next week we'll talk a lot about who he is. Actually, you would think it would be flipped around that Nehemiah would begin with, this is who I am. I'm a cupbearer to the king. But we'll talk about that next week. And interestingly, the whole focus of the very beginning of Nehemiah is about his prayer. Who God is and what prayer is like. So I thought with that we would pray together. Let's pray. Father, you are not an addendum to our lives. You are the ruler and master of all. And you had no need for any one of us to be here. You don't need any one of us to sing 
or to say the name of our God, uh, your name in, in majestic forms, the rocks will cry out, trees raise their branches to you in praise. The rains sing songs unto your name. The stars dance before you. You are sovereign, creator, Lord, and king. And it's because of your great astounding love that flows out of the communion of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, that you don't need our prayers or our fellowship or our praises, but instead you, as a spillover of who you are and your love and your delight and your joy is what we experience and what you want us to know. So I pray that as we consider Nehemiah's prayer, that it will be more than just uh, rote rituals or little formulaic sayings, but it would be like Nehemiah from our hearts that we just want to know you. We want to love you. We want to be in relationship with you. And we know that's possible because of your son. And so we thank you for your mercies and loving kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what propels Nehemiah to pray? Why does he, why does he pray? I'm going to go back to verses 1 through 4, and we get a little bit of the backdrop of his prayer. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. These were really dire times for Israel. It was a very difficult time. Um, In 586 BC, Jerusalem had been destroyed by Babylon. And though the Babylonians were the instrument of that destruction, ultimately, we see in the Bible, it's due to the fact of their own hardness of heart. They had not turned to God. They had gone their own way. And God used Nebuchadnezzar and the people and the armies of Babylon to be an instrument of judgment. They come, destroy the walls, the temple, everything that God had said he delighted in. But ultimately, he didn't care about Jerusalem, the walls, the temple. He cared about the people's hearts. And one thing we know throughout the prophets is that their hearts were far from God. And so God doesn't care about forms or buildings or the beauty of structures, even if it's for his glory, his purposes. If the heart is not there, then God doesn't care about it at all. After the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and take most of the people into captivity, the Babylonians are destroyed by the Medes and then the Persians. And so here we are. Persia is now the reigning kingdom of what is essentially, at least in the Western world, the known empire of the world. It is most of the Western world is ruled by Persia. And first it was Cyrus, and then now Artaxerxes is the king. 
the people of Israel, those who had remained were the poorest of the poor. So the Burundians, you might say, of Israel were left. I mean, they had nothing. They were impoverished, no medical care, no food, no protection. They were really vulnerable. And if you go to places like Africa or different places where there's um, a lot of poverty, and I remember visiting a place in Africa where in Swaziland, it was actually on a mountainside, and we went, and in this hut, one of their greatest needs besides food was actually a lock. And we would ask, well, why do they need a lock? Because the woman who was there with her 11 children, they were so vulnerable without a lock. And so one of the things that hands did is that they actually started providing locks because without that, a lot of these women were being, you know, exploited and children sexually abused. It's the, the wall was not intended to keep out people due to immigration or whatever it might be. It was about protection. It was about physical protection from exploitation. And so when Nehemiah who is now in serving in the services of Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And he's sitting there and hears report of how the people of Israel were utterly uh, vulnerable to all sorts of attacks and exploitation. The first instinct of his heart was weeping. He was compassionate. He could have sat there. If you've ever watched the movie Hotel Rwanda, um, one of the things that... Uh, the part where um, the, the main actor, I forgot his name at the moment. Yeah, Don Cheadle, right? He, he says, he basically says, you know, he's talk, they're talking about having dinner and, and all the things that are happening. And, and one of the actors basically says, well, why don't we, why don't, if we just tell them, if we just tell the people in the West what's going on? And they just said, well, you know what? They'll, say, oh, that's really bad, but then they'll go on and eat their dinner. They'll just continue eating their dinner. It won't impact them whatsoever. And I do think it's very easy for us to think that way, to hear about horrible events. You know, some perhaps some of you know of the, the Christian church that's undergoing intense persecution in China. Pastors and their wives, and I read this one account of a pastor and a wife being locked up 15 years why? Because he's a pastor. He's preaching the gospel. And under trumped-up charges, he ends up being locked away for 15 years. It's easy to hear that story and say, oh, that's so bad. I feel so sad about that. But just go on and eating our dinner. Nehemiah could have been just like that, hearing the story, saying, well, that's really tough. But in the end, he had a really good job, a lot of security, comforts, notoriety. He was in a, a position that was just, just really a place where he could advance, you might say, if he just kept his mouth shut, just do his job, and his family would be okay, everything would be taken care of. But instead, when he hears the report, his heart goes out to them, and he experiences brokenness. There's a sense that what he hears is not just a bad report, but there's an empathy that goes to a place where he feels the hurts, the vulnerability of what 
the people of Israel were going through. And it made him weep. It made him pray. It made him fast. Uh, you know, last Chad prayed over this, but I had heard from George Sneeman last week, and he was sharing with me um, through WhatsApp. He had sent me a, a prayer request, and he had said that in the DRC, in Goma, on the, you know, it's an incredibly dangerous area, and a service center where they support, basically, it had been overrun by rebels, and they had taken all the medical supplies and completely ran away with them. But on top of that, all the volunteers that Hands works with, the care workers, and these are basically members of a church. And these rebels came in, took all the women, and raped them all. And he, you know, he was only here not that long ago. And when he hears things like that, his natural instinct is to go there. You know, most of us, when we hear about a war zone, you want to flee from it. You're saying, I got to get out of there. His instinct is, I want to go there. And so he's on his way. So if you could pray for him. But these stories, the stories that we hear, I hope it's not just, oh, well, that's so bad. But we just keep on going with our lives. That's why when Carlin shares, I hope it's not, that's oh, really nice for them. But yeah, I get to live my life really comfortably. We look at Nehemiah and he could have done that himself but he doesn't. Now, what does he do? You know what is the first thing that he does is he prays. You'll see when we go through Nehemiah that he's not a, a passive guy. He's actually a leader. Many pastors and preachers, when they preach this book, it usually have the, has the subtitle leadership, how to be a leader. And so when you read about Nehemiah and you read chapter 1, it's easy to think, but if you're a real leader, don't you go in and just say, roll up your sleeves and say, let me start working. Let me strategize. Let me get a really good business development plan and try to figure it all out and then recruit a, a bunch of people and get it all together and let's start hammering it literally and, phys and figuratively. Let's get this going. But that's not what he does. He prays. And prayer for Nehemiah again, is not an add-on or some supplementary idea to his life. We will see it's much more than that. So what is prayer for Nehemiah? First, I want to look at some characteristics of his prayer. And there are a number of them that I'm leaving out just due to time. So if I, if I had two hours, <laughs> I'd be uh, laying it all out for you. Here are all the different characteristics of Nehemiah's prayer, but I'm going to focus on a few of them. First is primacy and consistency. Meaning that for Nehemiah, prayer is primary and prayer is consistent. How do I know that? Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 1. And you don't really see it so clearly until you understand it. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev, which is November, December, in the 20th year, 20th year of Artaxerxes. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, March through April, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, we'll talk about this next week, that's when he goes before Artaxerxes and actually asks. So when he hears about everything, it's November, December. And then in chapter 2 is when he actually goes to ask, which is March or April. So maybe four to six months later after hearing have you ever heard 
from a doctor a really difficult diagnosis or at work something has happened and something really pressing, a deadline or, or maybe you've been gossiped against or whatever it might be. There's something in your life. Maybe a child is giving you a really difficult time and, and you're just thinking, how do I deal with this? If you're like me, you act. Like when I hear something bad, the first thing I want to do is I want to fix it. I am Mr. Fix-It. <laughs> you know, Richard Scary, Mr. Fix-It. I'm sure some of you are like that. Many of us are like that. How many of you would say, let me pray four to six months and then start acting, start thinking and planning? Most of us wouldn't do that. We wouldn't be thinking, I want to pray for four months about this first. When we're thinking about you get a job offer or you're thinking about moving, is the first instinct to think, let me research the place and research the company and figure out where my kids are going to go to school and how much money I'm going to get and what are the comps for salary. That's our natural way of thinking. How many of us think, I want to pray four to six months before I actually think about moving onto a new place? That's not how we work. But it should be. It must be, actually. You know, Nehemiah hears about the condition of Jerusalem. It was dire. I'm sure the people who were bringing the news to Nehemiah were saying, Nehemiah, this is a dire scenario. We need you. You are an obvious leader. You have to start coming up with a plan, and let's act now. Talk to the king. But he doesn't do that. He waits four to six months praying. For Nehemiah, before anything, before asking, before building, before acting, he prayed. It wasn't, I guess, all I can do is pray. For Nehemiah, prayer was not, again, something that he did as a last resort. It was the beginning and the end of all that he did. It was a part of his life. It it's impacted the way he thought. And that's the thing about prayer is that it, instructs how we think, how we plan. Without prayer, and prayer is hard. You know why prayer is hard? Because prayer is dependent. Prayers, prayer forces us to not act in the way that we think we should. Our instinct is to do it ourselves because our work is often independent. Independent of God, that is. We think we have all the knowledge all the education, all the experience. We have the internet and we can research it all. We don't need God in this process. We might not say that, but our prayerlessness says that. When we are prayerless, what we're really saying is, I don't need you, God. I can do this by myself. I have enough information and I'm pretty smart and I'm pretty wise and experienced. I don't need you to determine how things should be. But for Nehemiah, prayer is not an, an addendum to his life, it was essential. Because he recognized that no matter what, he needed God before everything else. And again, I keep on saying this, but I will say it throughout, is that you will see as we unfold this passage and this book together, why it was so important for Nehemiah to have this prayer. I had a professor, his name was Dr. Christy Wilson. He was uh, an older man when I, uh, when he, when, 
I was in school, so he was sort of towards the latter years of his teaching career. He was a missiology professor. He taught missions. One thing that was known about Dr. Wilson is that he prayed. He prayed for the nations. He was a missionary to Afghanistan for over 25 years until he got kicked out of Afghanistan. But he, um, he was known to pray. When he would get into a car, if you got into a car with him, he would say, before you put on the seatbelt, he would say, can we pray together? <laughs> he did that every time. And if you got to know him, you would, you would never say, no, no, you know, it was never a disturbance because he meant it. It was really a part of his life. And there's a, a story told of one time there was a, when he taught class, he would always ask a student to pray before the class began. It was just who he was. And one time one of the students to play a joke on another student said, hey, hey, because the guy was sort of sleeping and he said, hey, hey, Dr. Wilson wants you to pray. So he got up in the middle of the class and started praying. This is in the middle of the class. So he started praying out loud. He sat down and Dr. Wilson said, thank you so much for praying. That was a wonderful prayer. And we're so thankful for that. That's who he was. When you get to meet someone who is like that, I remember you get an exam and every, you write a blue book. I don't know if you remember those blue books, but you write your exam. And on the sides were all these Bible verses of encouragements <laughs> as he would give you the, with prayers, little prayers written. It was who he was. And I, I, I see that man. And today at Gordon Conwell, there's a prayer chapel named after him because that's everything about him. And that's something when you read Nehemiah, you, you really understand prayer is not a formula. It's not a discipline. It is a part of who you are. It's not Christian duty. It's about relationship. And until we get that, we will really falter in prayer. Not because it's hard to pray. It is hard because we don't want to be dependent. But it's because we've made it into a duty, an obligation, sort of the checkbox of Christianity. To be a Christian means you have to pray. And when it's like that, I don't know if God really listens to us in the way that we want him to. This past week, we went out for a staff lunch, and uh, I didn't actually share this with the staff, but as we got in to the restaurant, I, I was just so hungry. I, I felt lightheaded. One of those, I, don't know if you've, I know some of you have experienced that, and the food got served, so it's sitting there, and the three were talking, and my mouth, I could almost feel the drool just going to my chin. I was so hungry, and I just wanted to yell out, hurry up, Chad, pray so I can eat. <laughs> Stop talking. Let's pray. And then as I sat there, and I am working on Nehemiah at this time, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was turning prayer into a preface to eating. That's the scariest part of thinking about prayer that way is that prayer becomes formulaic an obligation a duty it's it's what we do before we eat but we don't really care about the prayer we care about the eating that's it we don't care about god and what who he is and what he thinks of us we care more about god hearing our requests and when our prayer life is all about a bunch of requests, but without thinking about the God who answers those requests, 
Because God is who he is, a loving father, he always answers. Sometimes no, many times for our own good. But sadly, we are so focused on the answer that we fail to see whom we're asking, why we're asking. What are we doing when we're praying? So how do we get it right? We look at some of the other characteristics of this prayer to help us to get it right. Adoration. Adoration bookends Nehemiah's prayer. In verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. We sang a song about your name, the name that is so precious, so wondrous. This prayer is about God. Prayer is essentially about God, not about us. I don't mean that we can never ask God for things or that we we're not personally going out to God, but so often it is too much about me and not about God at all. God, please help me. Let me eat this well. God, give me a good grade. God, give me friends. God, give me wisdom and direction to know how, what, whether I should move on or change my career or marry this person or whatever it might be. And while these things are things that God wants us to say, but if this is our whole prayer life, I mean, who likes that even amongst us? Having a friend, a child, all they do is ask you for things. That's the only part of their relationship with you. They ask you for things. No one likes that. Why in the world then should we think that God would be happy when that's all we do? But for Nehemiah, what he cared about more than the things was God himself. And adoration is not a formula. Okay, acts. A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So I need to pray every prayer with, it's, it's our way. Our way is to take a structure, a formula, plug it all in and say, once I do this, then God's happy with us. But that's, while it's a guideline, it's so easy to turn guidelines into law. And when law is consuming us, we either get happy or sad based on whether we fulfill it or people or how people respond to us. For Nehemiah, it was who he was. He just knew who God was. He had experienced God. He, he had a relationship with him. And when, because of that relationship, saying these words was meant something to him so deeply. You know, I said that in order for us to be able to have a right perspective of God, you need to have a really big picture of him. In order to have a right perspective of our lives, you need to have a big picture of God or else we get overwhelmed. I went to Yosemite with George um, the other few weeks ago, and we were walking through Yosemite Valley. And you see the, the granite, you know, sheer walls all along both sides. It's just spectacular. Most All of you know that. I hope when you walk through those walls, you see God. Or you go to the beach and the ocean. And you're just amazed by the splendor and majesty of God. Or you look at the sky and you see the brilliance of the stars. 
And it's not just, oh, that's nice, but rather, how can you love me, O Lord? In the midst of all these stars in the universe, how, why do you even look at me? As David says in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And so, prayer is about God. God does care about the health of our loved ones. The test we're about to take. The travel mercies when we go overseas. He cares actually about the keys that we misplace. The parking space we need. He cares about the hardened heart that refuses to believe in God. The wayward. The rebellious. God does care about all of that. But if you are stuck believing that that's what God only cares about, that that's what matters above all things, and all those things are good things, hard things, important things, but if your view of prayer is only that, then you don't know what prayer is at all. Prayer is about understanding that we are praying as the creed writers said a long time ago, you know, I believe in God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's who we're praying to. That's why Jesus says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, holy, hallowed be your name. Jesus isn't just giving that formula. He's saying you have to have a really big view of God in order to understand why God wants to answer these prayers of requests and supplication to begin with. And until you get to the place where God matters more to you than even the answers to those requests, only then will you really start praying. So this is informative and important for us as we build a church building. Because here's the thing is that God doesn't care about our building. In fact, he could destroy it in a moment, and he should if the end goal of it is so that we can have a really great youth ministry or so that we no longer have to fold chairs anymore or so that we can um, you know, have a place where we can call home. Those are sub-blessings, but they're not ultimate. What is ultimate is that God is to be glorified in that place. And what we pray over, how we worship, how our hearts are there is what God is looking at. We all know that this world, the heavens are his home, the earth, his footstool, Isaiah 66. That's the God of the universe. So he's not our buddy. He's our king. And may we pray with that in mind, because that's how God must be prayed to. Secondly is that, uh, thirdly is there's intercession in our prayer. If you read Nehemiah and his heart responds to hearing about Israel, he weeps, he fasts, he prays, and then his heart prayer for Israel crying out to God for mercy, you know he has a heart of intercession, a heart of brokenness for a very stubborn, foolish people. And you're going to see in Nehemiah how foolish they are, how stubborn they are. Why does Nehemiah care for these stubborn people? Because he is merciful, and he learned that mercy from the God who was merciful to Nehemiah. You know this as a spouse or an, a parent or an adult child caring for an elderly parent. What keeps you going when it's hard? 
if you have a lot of young children, what keeps you going? Why do you, why don't you just say, I'm out of here? You kids are driving me bonkers. I'm leaving. Or if you are, you're caring for an elderly parent, and you know, the cycle of life really, they go from being a baby, adult, then back to baby again. In every way, physically, emotionally. And so, what keeps you going through that? It's definitely not feelings, circumstances. What keeps you going is not their kindness to you, that they're going to pay you back. What keeps you going is it has to be something further than that. It has to be about the core relationship. It's about the fact that we are, this is my daughter, my son, my father, my mother, my wife, my husband. And because of that biblical relationship, I am going to stick with this person no matter what. True biblical intercession is enamored by God and his character and his glory. And because of that relationship, we have a heart for people. I don't have a heart maybe inherently for people. Maybe personality-wise, I'm, I like being by myself. I'm not a, maybe a person who, when someone else is crying, I'm going over there saying, oh, I feel, I feel with you. I'm not a, maybe a natural nurturer or deeply compassionate, empathetic. But that should not preclude us from being a person who is empathetic and compassionate. If we are not tied in to the relationship that we have with a God who is empathetic and compassionate with us, we will never understand compassion, empathy. The most daring and most outrageous and most extravagant of love is the love of God for his people. Revealed most of all through Jesus Christ, God's own son. But until we know that for sure, and we understand that that's for me, only then will intercession flow. And so someone like Nehemiah, who I'm sure if sounds like a really, a, he was a soldier, he was a leader, he was a strong man. But this strong man is mourning and weeping for days because he understood the heart of God and it made him an intercessor. This prayer is a prayer of intercession. Another aspect of this prayer that will really help us to pray is scripture. Unless we are growing in God's word and growing means starting, <laughs> reading, making efforts. We won't know how to pray and we won't continue in prayer. The best prayers are the ones that are pinned to scripture, pinned to the Bible. Because the Bible gives us the written record, the historical record of who God is, how he has been faithful to us in the past, the present, and the future. I mean, I could, so if you're from a Buddhist background or different um, animistic cultures, there are mantras. You can say little phrases over and over again to get you into a higher level of consciousness and to eventually to a place where you reach nirvana, you reach certain levels of, of freedom through meditative means. But that's not what we as Christians are. We don't try to just simply say prayers one line over and over again to try to forget about our lives and really 
just get into a higher level of consciousness. We actually have, as we see with Nehemiah, a written record of who God is and what he has done. And so when he prays in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. You know, he's praying this prayer, thinking about Israel living in shambles. He's in a foreign land as a slave. And the people of Israel are vulnerable. The walls are broken. The temple that had been such a critical part of Jewish history had been destroyed. That doesn't sound like someone who keeps covenant until you understand that requires us to read the Bible. Well, what does Nehemiah mean by keeping covenant? God had a contract with his people, a covenant contract. And rooted in that is steadfast love, chesed in, in the Hebrew. And so the name of the Lord, and he says, O Lord, capital letters in your Bibles, which means the, the word Yahweh, not Elohim, which is God translated in, in from Hebrew to Greek, but in this instance, Yahweh. And that's the covenant name of God. It's the name that says, I'm God, you're my people. I promise you that if you obey me, I will bless you. I will protect you. I will be with you. You're my children, and I'll be there no matter what. And so when Nehemiah is saying this, he's pinning his prayer to the idea that, God, you've been faithful throughout history, but we have rebelled against you time and time again, and you're still faithful. You've promised to be faithful. You've promised that when we reject you, you will bring us back. And look at verses 8 through 9. That's his, his prayer in verses 8 through 9 is linked to the covenant idea of God. It says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, so in order to know, you have to, in order to appeal to God and his word, you have to know his word. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And we see this in Deuteronomy. That's what he said. But God saying, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. When we know God's word, when we know his promises, we know his character. And when we know his character, it actually shapes the way that we pray. We start praying in context. We pray with right motives. The motive of not, I want all my prayers answered because that's going to help me to live my life to the way that I think I should be led. But it helps me to pray remembering that actually I care more about who he is, knowing that he is faithful to his promises and part of that is to know that I'm loved by him. I will be cared ultimately, just like I know what is best for my youngest children when they're really young. No matter how much they say, I want to eat ice cream every day. I want to cross the street and run after the ball as much as I want. I want to turn on the stove without anyone looking. I want to stick this metal fork into an outlet. And they say, I know best. And you say, no, you don't know best. <laughs> we are just like that child. And God is saying, I know what you need, but you have to trust me. That's the covenant God. 
And God says in Deuteronomy to Moses, if you turn away from me, but you come back, I promise you, even if you're at the uttermost parts of heaven, I will bring you back. I will be the prodigal God who will welcome you home. And so Nehemiah says, I'm going to pray this way because that gives every request the foundation of right motives. As James says in 4 verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Many times our prayer requests are not answered because we spend it on our passions. We ask with wrong motives. Because maybe getting that job that I'm praying for when the answer is no is exactly what you need because if you got that promotion, you would spend it on yourself. I'm not just talking about money, but maybe the notoriety, maybe the new position, the power, and you would be further from God. Maybe sometimes the answer is no, healing will not come. Because that's exactly what you need to know who God is. And so we know that you cannot pray rightly apart from Scripture. And I tell you that the two are, must be intertwined or else prayer will be difficult. But if you're reading the Bible and you stop, so often all you need to do is read Scripture and then stop and say, what does this say about who God is? First, ask that question. And how can I give glory to him and pray over that? And then from there say, how does this inform my life? Do that on a regular basis and you will find both reading God's word beneficial and joyous as well as your prayer life will grow. Prayer is not just something you... There is a place and we'll talk about this next week, but prayer is not always about being on your knees for an hour to pray. It is whether you're walking across the street, whether you're at work, maybe you just arise in the morning. It's the first thing you think about. You pray. Let me just go to this last part. Gospel-focused, verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God said, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. Here's the problem with that statement. Is that what if you don't keep the commandments perfectly? I don't know about you, but I don't keep God's commandments perfectly. I actually can't. I try, but there will be failures. There will be failures. We can't keep God's commandments perfectly. It doesn't mean that we go about saying, well, I'm, I'm just going to do whatever I want then. Because Paul says anyone who does that, their judgment is upon them. But I also realize that no matter how hard I try to follow the Lord and do his will, I can't do it perfectly. And I know I will fail. And so what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Because this tells us so clearly that you ha I'm going to come, I'm going to return you back if you keep my commandments, but he, we don't keep his commandments. So Nehemiah is praying this prayer, knowing God's word, and that means we're in trouble. Unless 
unless there is an answer that there is a way to keep his commandments. And this is where the rest of the Bible informs us in Nehemiah. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, speaking about Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus' perfection in perfectly keeping God's commandments is the source of salvation for all who trust in him, who obey him, who follow him. Colossians 2.13, he forgave by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Legal demands meaning there is a demand of righteousness. Obey the law. Keep the commandments. Well, what do you do when you can't do that? Someone had to pay that debt. And the someone is named Jesus. And he was nailed to the cross so that that debt, that legal demand, that fulfillment of commandment could be paid. And then Colossians, Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But the prayer of Nehemiah would never be fulfilled by Nehemiah's faithfulness because he was not perfectly faithful. It would need to be fulfilled by someone else who could bring all of us back to God. From the uttermost parts of heaven and earth, people who were faulty in their obedience could be brought back to God's presence. It would require God the Son to come and to be the means by which reconciliation could happen. How do I know that our prayers will be answered? How do you know that even for all of us, when we pray, it's still faulty. I pray to God with mixed motives all the time. Sometimes it is, I just want to eat. (laughs) I mean, it really is like that. How do I know? Does God hear that prayer if it was based solely on my prayer no prayer would be heard none of my prayers because they're always coming with some sort of selfish motivation but that's exactly why when we pray at the end of a prayer in jesus name amen and i know sometimes i don't even say that because i'm always thinking i don't want to make it formulaic But there is something to say in Jesus' name if you mean it. Because what we're saying is, you know this prayer that I prayed, oh God? It's so faulty. There are a lot of selfish desires in it. And not only that, even if it was perfect, it would never be perfect. Because it's so infused with my own self-righteousness. But through the work of God, through Christ, He hears this prayer perfectly. This prayer that has come to God with brokenness, with a sin that I had just committed where maybe you had just gotten into an argument with someone and then, and I want you to try this. If you, husband and wife or parent, daughter, son, if you're in the middle of a fight, in the middle of a conflict, say this, can we pray together? I've, I've done it before. And you start praying and you're like, oh, okay, God. I don't feel like doing this. And you start, if you're honest with yourself, and the two are honest, but it is amazing what happens, the transformation of your heart slowly, the melting of your self-centeredness in the middle of that. And at the end of it, 
you close and suddenly you realize, what are we fighting over? Because our Savior died on a cross so that this prayer, which is so broken, so weak, and shambles, so empty, could be heard by a gracious, merciful God. Next week, February, I mean, I'm sorry, January 28th to February 1st, I'll talk about it one more time, preach about it. We're going to have a prayer and fasting week. We've been doing it for, this is our 20th year of praying and fasting together as a church. And God doesn't care about our prayer and fasting apart from Christ. But because the blood of Christ covers us and reconciles us and brings us home, Nehemiah's prayer is beautiful and so are ours. I'm excited for what God is going to do for this year. And I pray that you would continue praying your weak and feeble prayers, knowing that Jesus' blood covers it all and brings us to him. Let's pray together. Father, I praise you that, uh, as I just said, that my feeble and faulty prayers that so often come with terrible motives sometimes because sometimes it's I need to pray because I'm a pastor. I need to pray because that's the Christian thing to do. I need to pray because someone else is watching me and I need to look good for that person. There are really bad reasons to pray, oh Lord. And sometimes there are really good reasons. But even in the good times as well as the bad, they're never going to be good enough. And they're never so bad when Jesus covers them. When his blood shed is the means by which you hear us. Lord, I thank you that when you hear our prayers, they are sweet sounding to your ears. Not because the words are right, because we have all of our theological terms perfectly stated, but because your son speaks and brings them to the throne of heaven. And when you hear us, you hear your son. And it's because of what we are going to do right now as a remembrance of that reality is what keeps us going and what makes our, our prayers effective and righteous. So I pray that that would spur us on to delight in adoring you and being astounded by your creation. And most of all, by being overwhelmed by extravagant love shown to us at the cross. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.